Welcome to Learn the Night Sky, a podcast where you'll be looking up with me, your host Wanda, into the night sky. You'll learn some basics here, such as the motions of the skies, how to navigate and orient yourself. I'll show you what to observe as we go through the year, month by month. And at the end of each episode, I'll tell you the stories of our ancestors. The stories that are projected in the sky above us. Did you know that you can see a galaxy two and a half million light years away with just your eyes? Or that craters on the moon can be seen with binoculars? Yeah, me neither. I always thought you need to be a science nerd to understand all that. But actually, it is as simple as this. The first step in astronomy for beginners is simply to look up and ask, what's that? I exactly did that a couple of weeks ago and I discovered that there are so many things that await you with any clear night, no matter what month and day, and it doesn't take much skill or equipment to get started with stargazing at all. You can do it almost anywhere. You can use an app, binoculars, telescope, uh, or just your eyes. Uh, there is much to discover. As it happens, 2023 is an unusually good year for stargazing. From planetary pairings to a partial solar eclipse, it seems that this year has it all, or at least enough for beginners like us, I would say. So let's not leave the stars to the scientists and astronomy nerds with big fancy telescopes. Let's just get started. And even if you won't remember all of the facts and basics you're learning in the show, I can assure you, I personally have to read everything twice in order to understand it before I explain it to you. Because I myself, I'm not a scientist, I don't have a fancy degree. I'm just a linguist with some historical, astronomical interest. No matter what you take from the show, looking up in the night sky allows you to view things from a different perspective every time you step out. The best ideas we have come to us when we are at peace, in my opinion. And when I'm watching the clear night sky, it quiets my thoughts and it centers me. Enough introduction for right now. Let's dive into some basics you really need to know. Let's take a look at some basic concepts. I know theory is not very popular. Uh, I'm also tired of theory, um, but there's a few things you need to know in order to understand star charts, understand what I'm talking about here in my show. Uh, and in general, if you like stargazing, there is a few words you will always stumble across. So let's start with the ecliptic. Since the ancient Greeks, Bab Babylonians, Egyptians, whatnot, people have tried to make sense of the movements up there, the movements of the stars, the planets, the sun, the moon. For them, it looked like the earth was, of course, in the center of all these movements. We of course know that this is a result of the movements of our own planet. The sun actually doesn't rise or set. What's actually happening is that the earth is rotating. We just don't feel this rotation. Thank God, I would say. We as humans, we are just blissfully living on this rotating rock, enjoying the ride. And it takes one year for the Earth to orbit the sun once. Now, imagine the sun could leave an imprint in the sky at the same time of the day, every day for a year. Then, after one year, we would see a complete circle around us. This circle is called the ecliptic. The ecliptic represents the Earth's path around the sun. As the Earth and the Moon, all the other major planets also orbit the Sun in plane of the ecliptic. And they appear to follow the same path around the Earth. 
we use the Earth's orbital plane, the ecliptic, as the reference for the whole solar system. And you will see this line on every star chart, so it's really good to know. Next one is magnitude. Knowing how bright an object appears in the night sky is actually very important for identification and navigation. When astronomers talk about the brightness of a star, they will describe the star as a magnitude 1.2 or perhaps magnitude 1.4. So what does this mean? The brightness of stars is measured in units called magnitudes. This is not a unit like a meter or a mile. Each magnitude is two and a half times brighter than the previous magnitude. The larger the magnitude number, the dimmer the star will appear. Very bright stars have negative numbers. There are two kinds of magnitude measurements that are being used, so-called absolute magnitude, how bright something really is, or the object really is, and apparent magnitude, how bright it appears to an observer on Earth. So, to show you what I mean, let's compare two night objects. Our moon and Sirius. Sirius is the brightest star in the night sky. You've probably seen it all your life, and now you know that's Sirius. The moon appears to be brighter. From here, of course, from Earth, Moon much brighter than Sirius. So on star charts, the Moon's apparent magnitude is higher. Clearly though, a star like Sirius is much brighter in reality than our Moon. Our Moon is only reflecting sunlight and not generating any of its own light. The Moon has an apparent magnitude of minus 12.6 and Sirius minus 1.4. If we used absolute magnitude in our previous example, Sirius would be of course more luminous in terms of magnitude number uh, than the moon. But generally, hobby astronomers like we are, we don't talk about absolute magnitude because it has no impact on our viewing. So apparent magnitude is key here for us. Third one for today, how do we measure distance? It's also very important apart from navigation identification is very important to know the apparent size of a constellation or apparent distances between objects. That's also a great, great help when navigating the sky. Distances are measured in units called degrees. Of course you knew that, right? <laughs> uh, so for observation with our eyes though, we use our hands as they are very useful measuring devices. Our fully outstretched hand held at a arm's length spans about 22 degrees in the sky. A side on fingertip is about 3 degrees wide, the second joint is 4 degrees and the third joint is 6 degrees. One finger at arm's length will cover the moon which is less than 1 degree across. And last but not least, so-called conjunctions. Planetary conjunctions occur when any two astronomical objects like asteroids, moons, planets, stars, whatnot, appear to be close together in the sky from our view. And why do these conjunctions occur, you might ask? They occur frequently between planets because, you might have heard that already, because the planets orbit around the sun in approximately the same plane. You guessed it, the ecliptic. 
So now that we came full circle here in our little basics course, let's go outside and look up with me and discover what to observe this week. When you look up in the night sky, you might ask yourself, wow, there's so many stars. How can, where, where should I start? The only thing so far that I recognized was Orion's belt and maybe Sirius, but that was about it. Actually, observing the moon is one of the easiest ways to get started with astronomy. You can track the lunar cycle and use binoculars or a telescope to see how your view of it changes. When the moon is full, for example, it tends to be super bright and one-dimensional. In contrast, when the moon is a crescent shape, that's normally around first or last quarter phase, you get a more dramatic view of its craters since they'll be well-defined by shadows. Saturn, Jupiter, Mars and Venus are all fairly easy to spot in the night sky when they are up. If you see something that looks brighter than all the other stars, it's quite likely a planet. So overall, starting with planets is actually a very nice way into your stargazing journey. The brightest planet, Venus, dominates the western sky after sunset each night. In fact, Venus will continue to impress you for months. This month, super bright Venus dominates the night sky brighter than minus 4 magnitude. Just look after sunset towards the west. You cannot miss it. This beauty sets a few hours after sunset, so make sure you look up into the sky in the early evening. You will also see Mars. Mars is significantly above Venus, looking like a reddish dot. Speaking of which, today, on the 24th April, you will see that the moon is between Mars and Venus. Tomorrow evening, on April 25th, you will see a freeway conjunction, actually. You will see an orange Mars, now with merely a magnitude of plus 1.3, standing left of the crescent moon with dazzling Venus to their lower right. The reddish dot of Mars will be visible several fingers wide to the left. High in the western sky on Wednesday evening, April 26, the moon will form a bent line with Gemini's brightest stars, Pollux and Castor. The moon will shine binocular close to Pollux and you'll see the moon on that star's left on the southern side. Pollux's sibling, the bright double star caster, will twinkle to their right. And as the night wears on, the moon's motion will increase the length of this line. And if you happen to be up at 3am local time, this is the best time to see it. One day later, on 27 April, we will have a first quarter moon. First quarter moons always rise around noon and set around midnight, allowing them to be seen in the afternoon daytime sky too. The evenings surrounding first quarter moons are the best for viewing the craters, because they are going to be dramatically lit by a low-angled sunlight. The previous observations, of course, are just a selection that I did for the next couple of days. If you want to see more details, of course, you probably also want to see the constellations on the map so you can really identify it well when you step out tonight or in the next 
couple of days and I of course keep my fingers crossed for you that you have a clear night. Please go to my show notes, uh, you find a link for all the events and if you want to know more about upcoming astronomical events for the whole year, uh, you will also find a link there in the show notes from um, indesky.org. Um, they have a really, really nice calendar there where you can download all events to your calendar. You, you can filter by events that can be seen with binoculars, telescope or just your eyes. So it's really user friendly. I really love it. Make sure to check that out to make the most out of my show. I think it's getting a little chilly. We should go inside and I think there was enough facts and observations today. I think it's time for some stories. Oh, so much better inside. Nice and cozy, just how I like it. That's the only downside of stargazing, I would say. The first thing my dad said to me when I told him that I'm going to go into stargazing, he said, it's gonna be cold. And I thought, yeah, whatever. But then, yeah, after some time, I figured, yeah, you need layers, you need hot drinks. You're gonna be outside there quite a while, even without a telescope. You look into your app, you look into your star charts, and so on. It really takes more time than you think, or just orienting yourself, looking at familiar constellations so you can go from there. So yeah, take my advice. Don't underestimate how cold it can get during the night, no matter where you are on this planet. I think the only nights that are exempt from this are summer nights. Anyway, when I think about our episode today and the planets and all the objects up there, actually, they are all Greek and Roman. Obvious, right? But if you really think about it, these names were given by astronomers thousands of years ago and we still kind of use them and we ran with it. Nobody ever thought, hey... Maybe we should update the names, but we never did. And so, do we actually know about any of these stories behind the planet's names? No. And now when I put myself in the place of an ancient Roman or Greek, standing outside in every season, gazing up at the night sky, during this time, the gods of Olympus ruled. And so these ancient sky watchers and philosophers called these objects in the sky after the gods and the goddesses that seemed to resemble them in some way. Let's take Jupiter. Jupiter for them was a large and powerful looking planet in the sky. Jupiter, the name is derived from the king of the gods. He was also large and powerful. Saturn kind of puzzled the ancients. Sometimes... It seemed large, bright, glowing, and other times it seemed to dim itself. It was given the name of the king of the titans, Saturn, father of many of the gods. If you remember from your Latin class, the titans were the oldest generations of gods. And the Olympians are basically, I think, the third generation, if I have that correctly. And I think there was a showdown between the Titans and the Olympians, and then the Olympians basically winning and ruling the world. So, 
And Venus, of course, we all know that was the most beautiful sight in the night sky for them. So it was only fitting that it would carry the name of the most beautiful of goddesses, Venus. Mars is the bright red planet. Mars is also the god of war, who is associated with blood. Even though, fun fact, Mars never won a battle. His sister Artemis, who was skilled at both battle and strategy, beat him every single time. There's one thing that you might know about Mars and Venus, right? They had this love affair. And I think when it comes to forbidden love affairs, Mars and Venus are right up there with Romeo and Juliet. So I didn't know that. I had to look it up. Venus was married to Vulcan, the old, unattractive, boring god of fire. Vulcan was a blacksmith and matter-of-fact kind of guy. And it seems that he really didn't do it for Venus. She fell for Mars, who was much more exciting, powerful, handsome. Then Vulcan found out about their affair and made a fine iron net trap. So fine, it was invisible. His net caught Mars and Venus together in bed, humiliating them as the other gods watched and laughed. And But those same gods laughing were also envious. Even Mercury, who expressed the least sexual desire of the immortals, choked that he wouldn't mind being caught in a trap with Venus. Another fun fact, if you ever want to see this scene on a painting, there is one from um, 1604-1608, Oil on Copper, um, displayed in the G. Paul uh, Getty Museum in Los Angeles. Uh, the painter has a name that I cannot pronounce, something Joachim Wittewald, whatever. So if you live in Los Angeles, go and check it out. It's actually hilarious. You can really see how they are trapped in this fine, invisible net. And, of course, some of you might be screaming at me right now. How can she forget the Botticelli uh, Venus and Mars painting? But if you look at this one compared to the one from the uh, 1600s. Sorry, but that one is boring, so... Yeah, look it up. So now that we looked at the Greek and the Romans, which is quite a Western-centric view of the world, of course, the Greeks were not the only ones. And so, for instance, the Mayas and the Aztecs were passionate astronomers. They were recording and interpreting every aspect of the sky. They believed that the will and actions of the gods could be read in the stars, moon, planets. So they dedicated a lot of time doing so. And many of their most important buildings were built with astronomy in mind. So the Maya were aware of the planets in the solar system. Venus, Mars, Saturn, Jupiter. Well, not just the Greek, as I said. And they tracked their movements. The most important planet by far to the Maya was Venus which they associated with war. Battles and wars would be arranged to coincide with the movements of Venus. Captured warriors and leaders would likewise be sacrificed according to the position of Venus in the night sky. The Mayas 
also painstakingly recorded the movements of Venus and determined that its year, relative to Earth, not the Sun, was 584 days long, closely approximating the 583.92 days that modern science has determined. So yeah, that's pretty interesting if you ask me. I And of course, the Greek and the Romans are not the only ones. And probably every indigenous people on this planet, on every continent, has a name for the planets. And no matter where you are in the southern hemisphere or in northern hemisphere, you see the planets, right? So... So we have to assume basically that every culture on this planet has names for the planets, the moon, constellations, and it's sad that we only use the Greek ones. I would love to use different names, maybe every 50 years or so, maybe every 10 years to mix it up. We use different names, so so every culture has their time. That would be lovely, but not very realistic, so... Let's park that idea for later, my manager would say. And that was it. That was my first episode. I hope you liked it. I hope you enjoyed it. And maybe I got you hooked on stargazing. If so, see you next week or see you in May when we talk about all things that are to be observed in May and more basics, knowledge and stories from me. You find all references to what I've talked about today in the show notes and one thing I have to say big thanks to my podcast buddy and best friend in the world Glenn from Nussle House where Glenn reads books to you the best book podcast by far thanks for all the help and the motivation you gave me to actually get started again on podcasts I'll be forever indebted to you see you all next week in the next episode of Learn the Night Sky